It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On today's podcast, we dig back into the archives for an episode we did with Joe Daly, now the receivers coach at Boston College. At the time, he was at Liberty, but then made a quick change to become the offensive coordinator at New Mexico, where he spent a season and then hooked on with the Boston College staff. He's one of the brightest offensive minds in football, and that definitely comes through in this episode as he talks about everything that goes into how he coordinates an offense. I promise you'll enjoy this one, so take a listen. Welcome to the Coaching Coordinator Podcast. Joining me today to talk a little bit of offense and certainly some of the things he's learned as a coach coming up through the ranks is the offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach at Liberty University, Joe Daly. Joe, great to have you here on the podcast. Keith, thanks for having me. I really, really enjoy your show a great deal and really the guests that you have come on speak about a large number of topics so thanks again i really appreciate that thank you well well, joe you have some great experiences here both as a player and a coach coming up through the ranks started off at at uh, nebraska and then went on to play at north carolina and really a lot of that i think kind of dovetails into where you've ended up and some of the guys who you've coached for but talk to us a little bit about where you got your start in coaching Certainly, the former head football coach here at Liberty University, Turner Gill, recruited me out of New Jersey back in 2002. And so, you know, pretty much he told my uh, my parents, hey, I'm going to make this this young man you see here a better man at the conclusion of his college football career. And certainly uh, he did that, even though I didn't want to play in a total of four years underneath him. We stayed in constant communication. Even though I transferred, he was a guy that I wanted to be like. He was a role model. He was an African-American quarterback coach, and that was something that I aspired to be uh, myself. And so Coach Gill is really the the reason why I, uh, I was able to get into college football because I started off as a graduate assistant for him at the university at Buffalo. And I know having been a GA for him and, and then coaching for him later, he's, he's made a big – impact on your career and probably who you are as a coach but talk to us about those guys who've made the biggest impact and some of the things you've been able to learn from them along the way yeah certainly I have to say that my stepfather Rich Hansen who's the uh, head football coach and athletic director at St. Peter's Prep in Jersey City had the uh, the biggest impact on me as a young man 
He really is the reason why I aspired to be a football coach because of the impact that he had on, on the men that came across his journey as a football coach. And then I was really, really blessed and fortunate to have, I had five offensive coordinators, five head football coaches in my five years of, of being a student athlete between North Carolina and Nebraska. And so fortunate part of all that was they were all uh, NFL position coaches and they all coached in a number of different systems, you know? So with that being said, you know, I learned three versions of the West Coast offense. I learned a version of what I'd say a pro-style spread at that time, and then the true option offense. So in five years, you know, I learned what it usually takes anywhere between, you know, 10 and, and 15 years of uh, football, you know, really in, in, in one opportunity. So I was really, really blessed and fortunate to be around a bunch of quality men that coach football at the highest level and decided to come back to the collegiate ranks. And and you really you made a mark too as a player. I know at Nebraska, you became the first quarterback in, in program history to throw for 300 yards in a game. It's crazy hearing a stat like that today from in college football because it seems like you know 300 yards isn't a big deal anymore. But you know went on to set a single game passing record with with 342. So having played in all those systems and and done something like that and and learned i think you know you talk about your offense being a hybrid offense and we'll kind of get into that later kind of a blend of old school meets new school seems like a lot of what you did in those various systems playing for those various coaches is kind of transferred now into you know what you do as an offensive coordinator yeah certainly it was you know, at the time, it was, it was it was difficult because you were asked to learn John Gruden's offense when uh, Bill Callahan came into Nebraska. We literally were learning the Oakland Raiders playbook. We literally, that's what we had as a reference. And so, you know, all the verbiage that went into that was a lot different than the previous year when we were running a true eye-back you know, option offense where you were just, you know, really checking to shade, checking the leverage, you were checking the numbers. You know, so just having that experience of learning a number of different systems was invaluable, you know, for my career you know, as, a, as a young football coach. We've kind of focused a little bit on more the, the playing side of things. But before you and I got talking that, uh, you know, a big part of this game is learning how to build those relationships early on in that career as you're making your transition from being a player into a GA, then into a full time coach. What are some of the things you've learned that you incorporate now as as the guy who's not only building the relationships but has to go out and recruit these guys and it it starts right there and then goes through you know four or five years of developing them at school? Yeah, certainly. There's three things that really come to mind when it comes to to jumping into this profession and wanting to be a ball coach. One, you know, really listening with your eyes and your ears, really sitting back and observing the people and the interactions that they have coaches the players players the coaches coaches amongst each other players amongst each other um, i just think that it's it's huge for you to really understand people in this business and, and the best way to learn is to by listening with your eyes and your ears really studying the quality interaction amongst people i'd say there's no substitute for hard work if you're willing to put in the time to learn whatever the information is that you need to learn to know it, to master it, and for it to be second nature, to be become really part of who you are, it's, it's irreplaceable. No one can really uh, can replace you when it's your knowledge, when it, when it belongs to you. And last, there can be no growth without discomfort. If you're not willing 
to you know get out of your comfort zone to to be in a place mentally and physically you've never been before in order to go to a place you've never been before you know if you're not willing to do that then it's not going to be easy to, to get in this profession and have a lot of success a lot of young guys looking to get into this profession i mean it, it's not an easy thing to do it's very competitive probably a few weeks from now we'll all be at the AFCA in San Antonio, and uh, it certainly is a networking event. And you see a lot of guys there, young guys, looking for a job, trying to hook on as a, a GA and get that opportunity. And um, what, what's your advice for the young coach out there who's looking to get into college football and be a college football coach? It's certainly, it's a lot, a lot more than just handing out a business card or, or getting someone's cell phone. You know, you really got to go out of your way to make a connection. And at times, you know, at the FCA convention, it's it's just difficult because there's so many people and you're really trying to make a, a lasting impression on folks, but time is limited, you know. And so really, in my opinion, the best time in order to try to make a connection outside of the AFCA convention, you know, would be, you know, in the off season, maybe spending some time getting in a vehicle and, and, and driving somewhere to visit with coaches, and getting in a one-on-one situation with them aside from a, a group of coaches where you can just ask them real candid questions and develop a relationship just because it's it's very difficult at the convention to really, really get into deep conversation with so many bodies just moving around, mm-hmm. things of that nature. And so it's a lot more than just handing a business card and exchanging cell phones. It's about developing a relationship. And it may not be at that point in time, but set aside some time where you can really go and, and, and spend some time with somebody um, given the opportunity. Coach, part of our learning really comes from some of the times where we've tripped up. What's a mistake you made as a young coach that you really learned from and made an impact, I guess, on who you are today? Good question. I'd say maybe following through. There were times where I didn't do a good job of following up and following through with maybe an email correspondence as a young coach, excuse me, or maybe a letter that was written to me and I didn't get back to responding in, you know, in a timely fashion. I learned over the years, those things, they take time. They mean something. If someone wrote you a letter, obviously you were on their mind. And so as a young coach, you'd get a note and you set aside a sticky note, like, hey, make sure you respond back. And it would take me weeks, you know, sometimes months before I got an opportunity to. Uh, just being a graduate assistant, you know, your your time is limited. There's times where I wish I would have sent that letter back a little sooner than I actually did. So make sure you follow through and, and follow up on any type of correspondence with anyone, really. Coach, you started 2012 at Liberty and moved up the ranks there, quarterback coach, passing coordinator. Now you're the offensive coordinator. As you've moved through and then took the reins over as the offensive coordinator, what kind of evolution has the offense had and, and you know, where, where have you moved it to today? Well, really prior to being the offensive coordinator, I was the pass game coordinator and quarterbacks coach here. And we were a traditionally pro-style offense that operated under some West Coast passing principles. And once I took full control of the offense, I wanted to make sure kept the roots of what I was brought up in, which is option football, but I wanted to be ahead of the curve with, you know, the new school RPOs and screens that are kind of built into your run and pass game. And so the combination of old school football with ISO power counter inside zone, outside zone, a little bit of option 
addition to the new school RPOs with screens and quick game and second, third level read passes built into it, kind of changed kind of the game of football from my perspective and how we decided to attack people. And and with that, really, what's become your philosophy and how you want to operate as an offense? Really, really simple. You know, it all starts with having an identity. When we turn on the tape, we want to make sure that we see that we're playing fast, we're playing physical, we're playing discipline, and we're finishing every single play detailed class. And so those are the standards in which we look for every time we watch tape, you know, specifically practice, but for certain when we watch game tape. From there, we talked about, hey, we want to be able to take advantage of one-on-one matchups. Anytime we have a, a matchup to where our guy is genetically better than that guy across from him, we want to capitalize on that one-on-one matchup. In the event that there's some type of two-on-one, then we're going to look to numbers. Do we have the numbers in the, in, in the box to run the football? If we do, then let's pound the rock. You know, we want to be physical at the line of scrimmage. We want to reset the line of scrimmage once the football is snapped and gain a yard every time the football is snapped with our front five. And then in the event that the box is loaded and we don't have a one-on-one that's favorable, then we want to be able to get to the perimeter of the field somehow, some way, whether it's a, a, a screen, whether it's a running back fast motion bubble out of the backfield, whether it's some type of quick screen to the field or speed option, figure out some way to get the ball to the perimeter of the field and try to circle the entire defense. So the premise of the offense is to take advantage of one-on-ones, take advantage of numbers in the box, and take advantage of leverage on the perimeter of the field. Because you said you wanted to be a guy who was ahead of the curve in some ways, and obviously the that keeps changing and evolving year to year. As you sit back now, look at this past season, and start to see what some teams are starting to do, whether that's against you or in, in some of the other things that you watch, as well as some of the evolving concepts on the offensive side. What are, what are things that have you interested right now, both the things you think you see as as something that the, the game is going to evolve to or what you'd like to evolve to a little bit more, plus the things they're going to have to face. Certainly, I think the second and third level reads with quarterback run game would be one of the things that I'd I like to to venture in myself. I see you know, a couple teams dibble and dabbling with it with the stick draw or the stick QB draw or Q ISO with a bubble or a hitch kind of built into it. I think running those, you know, those basic – core run concepts of inside zone, outside zone, power, counter ISO with, with the quarterback as the primary ball carrier, but having RPOs built in on the perimeter field in addition to it kind of puts defense in a real bind because now you're talking about playing 11-man football every single snap. And defensively, you just it's going to be very difficult and you can't be right because now the primary ball carrier is the quarterback, not the back. Mm-hmm. And you're not always going to play with a post safety. Or you're not always going to play with two safeties back there. So you're going to have to make a decision on, well, hey, man, they always got an extra hack because the QB is the ball carrier. So we got to figure out a way to, to take away the one-on-ones and the perimeter spits and add another hat in the box to stop this QB from running the football. So I think some of the things that you're seeing out there with Kansas State kind of did in years past and a little bit of what Oklahoma's doing right now will start to really show and surface a lot more across the college football landscape defensively what are the some of the things you see uh, starting to trend as as far as uh, some of the things the defenses are starting to do to take away especially the rpo i know everybody's 
interested in running the RPO, but especially defending it. And, and there's some trends developing there. Yeah, there's, there's a large body of things that people are really tinkering and toying with right now in college football. I think Iowa State did a really good job of trying to figure out the whole, how do I stop the RPOs without getting gassed in the run game? And so they jumped in the four eyes and an odd front and had an extra guy kind of lurking in the, in the back end. And that guy was always showing up in random spots. And I think that kind of eliminated the free access throws, some of the slants in the, in a, in a, in a timing post. I think that disrupted some things in the back end and up front, you know, four eyes make it difficult to be able to double team and get to a backer, which allows those box backers to kind of freelance and get over top and make plays in the run game. We had an opportunity this year to play against army and their defensive coordinator did a phenomenal job of mixing their, their packages, both their personnel and their fronts. And so they didn't always allow you the opportunity to take advantage of free access throws, alley throws, shell reads and perimeter throws. And so being able to mix up the odd front and taking away free access and, and alleys and post safeties kind of limits you in the RPO world. And then obviously just playing dude coverage, straight man coverage or playing cover zero where you pin your ears back, you're coming after the QB or the ball carrier and you're locking those guys up outside and you're not allowing them free access to run outside and run conversion routes. Playing man, mixing up the front, Mixing up the, the back end looks is really what I've kind of noticed just watching uh, college football over the past two seasons has been pretty effective. Yeah, the, the, the tight front certainly seems to be something that teams are, are looking towards more and more to, I guess, force force the running back in some places. I know the conference I coached in, I'd see it, see it at least uh, three times a year. It honestly was not my favorite favorite thing to see. I, I'd, I'd prefer to see an over and under. Much easier mm-hmm. to deal with those. What are your What are some of your favorite concepts to to run when you're seeing the tight front, the four four zero fours? Yeah, certainly like to jump in a heavier personnel. The thing about our system is we, we call ourselves a hybrid spread offense, just because we we can still jump into untraditional spread formations and personnel groups. And we take a lot of pride in, in our ability to be diverse with how we attack people. We can jump into 21 personnel or 22 personnel and go after a tight front and try to match the ball. But we also can attach RPOs to that, to that same personnel and formation. So having the flexibility to still be able to attack the perimeter of the field and find your numbers and your, and your matchups still trying to run the football downhill is something that we've, you know, we've always tried to do here, you know, on, at Liberty, the offensive coordinator, we've just really tried to go after people, no matter what the personnel formation was, just because we know that football is football. It's not going to change. Right. If jumping and having a personnel group, you know, we're trying to run the football. There's no doubt about it. So you got to find a way to, to add, to hat it up, drop one guy, drop two guys, play man coverage, figure it out. But, you know, there's a way to run and throw the football out of multiple formations and personnel groups. 21 and, and 22-wise, some of the RPO and read stuff, what do you like to do out of that personnel? Well, either in a balanced you know, receiver on each side of the ball or you're in a, a two-receiver set, slot set, and you got your basics. I mean, you got your hitches, your slants, your, your verticals, your quick outs. You got your your bubbles and your spits or your smokes. You got double slants, you got double quick outs. I mean, there's a number of things we would jump into 
pending, obviously, leverage and coverage manner zone. Are you going free access on those pre-snap reads to throw those or something that you'll go post-snap? Well, everything will, will start off as a pre-snap, but once the football snap, we're more concerned about the post-snap movement and the availability to throw a free access throw or a timing throw or give them a chance to throw fades and back shoulder fades and things of that nature. Got it. Coach, is there uh you know, looking back at this this past season, play that was either very explosive for you or something that, you know, you like to call every game that you might hang your hat on that you could walk us through? There was one play specifically that we we always held on the back burner. It was always in our back pocket in a situation in which we needed to kind of go on a drive. We needed we needed a play to get started and we wanted to play to to go beyond a first down. We would jump into a 12, we jump into 11, we jump into 10, and we'd be in a two by two, and we'd have the you know the back and the side cart or, or offset to us, and we'd run outside zone to the field or the boundary, but opposite of the outside zone, we'd run some type of RPO. It would be double slant, it'd be a, a seam and, a, and an outside in, a clear out and a slot out, and we really just feel the leverage of the box and the movement of the box and the external box players. And we run outside zone, and if they fit the run, then we're going to get us some in the RPO world. And if they were going to drop and play coverage, then we're going to hand the football off and, and gain numbers as we went. And the back was just going to find a vertical void and then hit it with gas. For some reason, this season's been – it was one of the best play calls that we had third or fourth quarter when we really needed to go on a drive just because, you know, we didn't show it a lot. And then, you know, when we did, it was just – percentage-wise, not consistent enough for people to say, hey, they're always going to run this when they jump into this formation or this personnel group. And so outside zone in one direction, an RPO of double slants, a clear out or seam in an end, you know, was was phenomenal for us this season. It helped us win against Troy this season in, in a game in which we were underdogs and we wound up beating those guys and pulling the upset. And coaching us through maybe the run part of that play, First of all, you're two by two. Do you, are you using attached tight end at times, or are you guys spreading that? No, sir. We're we're detached. So with with the running back, what what's his aim point that you're pushing for? He's going to try to push one yard outside that play side tackle. And he really wants to stretch it, but we know that defensive end's got to make a decision. He's either going to get up the field and set the edge, or he may try to play in or underneath that that tackle, which then gives the back an opportunity to kind of circle the front. And how are you coaching that backup? That's a, a key part of the play, obviously. We we messed around a little bit with the footwork. Sometimes we'd have his heels on the quarterback's toes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'd tell the QB, uh, you take your normal alignment back, you take your normal yard and a half alignment, and post-snap, you just hop back and lateral shuffle and get your eyes on the key. And so the footwork for the back and QB would vary. Um, and really, it depended on – Two things. One, you know, the comfortability of the quarterback. And then two, what we felt was feasible for the back to be able to make a cut. And looking at the offensive line, obviously on the, the front side, you know, you're going to stretch those guys, try to reach them. Is there anything b- different you're doing on the backside? We would lock the backside tackle on that defensive end, regardless mm-hmm. if he was a 4 I, 4 or 5. We would lock him so that we wouldn't allow that backside defensive end or edge rusher to just tee off on the quarterback as he's trying to execute his uh, RPO read. Got it. And then and the the read for you then is going to be 
uh, which linebacker? Depending on which which tag. You know, if you had double slants, you key that box backer. If he triggers to fit the run, then you trigger off the, trigger the slant. As you're reading that slant and you feel like that apex or, you know, that slot corner carry or cover that inside slant, then you got the second slant coming outside. If you had clearing an out attached to it, key that apex defender. If he's triggering the run, then you, you can flip it out there. You always got to be alert for a cloud corner, and then which you got to be ready for a, a hole shot. If you were tagging uh, the clear in the end, you know, it was the same kind of read, trigger off the nickel. If the nickel, if the nickel runs, that you go ahead and, and, and place that ball on the end, you know, if he stays to to, uh, to protect that, that curl area or that vertical, and he hands it off and, and you let your back do what he was recruited to do. As you're game planning that, obviously you're going to vary your attachments. Is that something you're mm-hmm. varying those attachments week to week? Are you varying those versus, versus a certain defense? Are you looking at maybe certain guys who you would like to make, you know, that dual uh, responsibility player? Yeah, it was a combination of, of all of those things. You know, if we did it in 12 personnel, we wanted to see, okay, which backer wasn't as genetically gifted to cover in space or mm-hmm. which backer was more eager to fit the run than the other. We'd also look at, okay, the slot corner. You know, what is what is his best asset? What does he do really well? Well, then let's make him do that and then put the football in a position where he can't cover. Um, and then there was times where, hey, if we're going to get man coverage and we're going to run this play, then we got to figure out the best way to clear out some space so this guy can catch it and hit the gas afterwards. So there was a number of different variables that we were looking for week to week when we attached those different RPOs. Because if you had to get a chunk and you're looking to get a chunk of yardage, obviously explosive plays are very important to a drive and in, in scoring and your chances of of scoring uh, drastically increase uh, even with one explosive in a drive. What are you looking to do to, to take a chunk of yardage from the defense? We had we literally had a chunk package where it was a set of about four plays that we felt like, hey, if we get in a situation where we need to gain, you know, 15, 20, 25 or more pop, and we need to focus on protecting long enough to get these four plays executed, one of them would be, a, a pseudo sale route where we could be in a two by two or three by one and we'd have one on a really on a, a read post he can if versus cloud coverage or man he, he would run a vertical if he got any type of free access whether it was soft man or cover three or a quarters look he'd run what we call a beat the man post yeah so number two on, on the sale concept, would run a stem corner where he would stem in for five yards, hit the gas for 15, and then put his foot in the ground and set the corner high. He'd be given the opportunity to flatten out versus the, the coverage outside of him. And that was, you know, between the post or the read post and that sale route, those were two quality combinations that we felt really good about being able to get the ball down the field. And then we'd always have some type of flat route built into that to the front side there. So you have a three-layer throw so the QB could still make a, a smart decision in the event that one and two isn't open. Then on the backside, we have what we call a pig, which stood for post dig. And it really just came into the vision of the QB. And really that route kind of came open once the QB climbed the pocket and he was eliminating people and he goes to check fourth read and here it comes into his vision. You know, he's going to catch that football probably towards the field hash. Um, 
if not a little further as the quarterback's climbing that pocket. And then your flare control would either be a, a swing or some type of underneath route, uh, breaking opposite of the field concept. Because the other aspect of your job, which you take great pride in and something you really want to become was a quarterback coach. Talk to us about training that group. What are the important things for you that um, you're going to work with them both on and off the field? There's so many things we can do with those guys. Obviously, at the college level, you have 20 hours to get it done. Uh, mm-hmm. How are you going to maximize the time you have with those guys? Yeah, training the quarterback comes down to really developing them in three areas, in my opinion. It's training the feet, the arm, and the mind. And everything that you do on a daily basis with your quarterback is about training one of those three areas. And obviously, you know, two of those are physical uh, in the sense that time uh, allotted for you to to be able to work with them. You're working on the the feet and the arm a great deal. You also are going to include the mind. There's a number of ways ways to train, you know, that aspect of it. But in terms of the, the physical aspects of, of training the quarterback, training the feet and the arm are paramount for trying to get the most productivity from your quarterback. When it comes to training their mind, there's a large number of things that you can do on a daily basis with your quarterbacks that don't always require you to, to be in their presence. We would do a, a daily visualization and we were kind of just cut the lights out and we recreate a scenario in which quarterback had to, you know, take the field with a certain amount of time left on the clock or a certain point in the game. And we try to recreate a scenario where, hey, first and 10 left hash, 11 personnel, uh, one a two by one. And, you know, we got inside zone called here with a perimeter RPO and a, and a bubble. Ball snap, I'm keying the apex defender. He triggers, I spit the ball in the perimeter and watch it run. Second and two, we're going to go fastball. Get the ball snap, get it out of your hand and get in the back's hand as fast as possible, getting downhill. Oh, man, we're in a crazy situation. We only, we got stuff. It's third and one here. All right, we got to get in the best play call possible. Get everybody in the huddle. Right, let's communicate this thing. Eyes and ears. Listen, guys, here. And we're going to go heavy right, heavy right. We're going to go 23 blasts on one-on-one. Ready, break. All right, so we were trying to recreate some scenarios mentally and visualization-wise to prepare them for the event that possibly can occur in a game, you know. So that was, you know, some of the mental things that we would work on. We would do uh, coverage recognition, you know, where we would throw a coverage on the screen. We play 1.4 seconds of a clip and then the screen would go black. And our guys would have to be able to recognize man or zone by the depth, eyes, and leverage and the reaction you know, of a certain defender. Um, and then we would do anything with uh, QB teach each other sessions where we get those guys on the board mm-hmm. and they would coach us up on how exactly, you know, they are to read a certain play or what the technique and, and thought processes were in uh, involved in a certain coverage or a certain blitz, et cetera. So, you know, everything that we did when it came to training the quarterback had to deal with training his feet, arm, and mind on a daily basis. Yeah, you're hitting a lot of learning styles there, too. I love it. I I like the uh, visualization period you're doing. And I think, especially for young quarterbacks, the the coverage recognition stuff, being able to tell something about the defense, both pre-snap and in in those 1.4 seconds, which is essentially what he has from that snap to maybe a a little bit longer till his first throw in a progression. I think that's, that's so important that 
they're able to do that quickly. And I like the way you're training that. Coach, as you get your team on the field, your entire offense, what's your practice look like? What kinds of things are you working on each day and how much individual will your group periods, what's your team like? You know, we truly believe in maximizing our time on the football field. And we would never waste time. Everything that we did had to have a purpose. And so if we did a ball security drill, you know, we were coaching it to the finest detail, the finest point in which our guys, they get to the point where they could coach us up on it extremely well. We did all types of things in the individual to put our guys in the best position possible. We would also do ball security drills where we were the defenders in the event, what we call the worst case scenario. Say there was a turnover of some sort of uh, interception, a strip fumble, bobble snap. We would recreate the situation where now the defense has now scooped the football up and now they're running down the field. Hey, how do we get that ball back? Because at the end of every play, you know, as offensive coordinator, I want to make sure we have that football back. So if something bad happens or the worst case scenario takes place and they get a turnover, we got to figure out a way to get that ball back. We're not just going to wait for the defense to get the ball back. We, don't, we have an opportunity to go get it. So every man on the, on, the, on our football team, or specifically on offense, better learn the skills and techniques and, that are needed to go get that football back. So we work on what we call CPR, which is club pull rip, you know, because the worst ball carriers on the field are the defenders, the guys on defense. Mm-hmm. And so on a daily basis, we would work a ball security drill in which – we were the on we were on defense and we were trying to get the football back from those guys who had just uh, received a turnover. We would do what we call a run review and it'd be a we try to rattle off anywhere between twenty five and thirty four plays back to back versus multiple looks in a ten minute period and we were banging. We put the ball in the middle of the field and we would just go and it was going to be the most physical period of the day. It would set the tone. For the rest of practice and usually is the last 10 minutes of Indy. Once we were finished with Indy, then we jumped into a team period that kind of captured our base first and second down thoughts, our short yardage thoughts, um, and then any of our, you know, express tempo plays. And then from there, we jump into a seven on seven period in which we were going to try to capture our base first and second down thoughts in addition to any uh, third and short or medium uh, passing situations. And then the final team period would kind of would a summary of the entire first and second down run install. And then we would jump into a heavy short yards goal line period. And so on the very first day of practice of the week, we would try to bang out first and second down run pass, uh, short yards and goal line situations. And then from there, the rest of the week, you know, really kind of went into situation and scenario specific play calls. And moving that then to game day and coaching up your team on game day. First of all, as as the uh, offensive coordinator, did you go up or were you down on the field? I was always in the box. I was always in the box. And I always felt like, you know, you had, from a quarterback perspective, I had to see what he was seeing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, on the field, I can't always see what he sees. But from the booth, you know, the eye in the sky, you can definitely see what he sees and you can – kind of go through some of the thoughts with him uh, following that series just because you saw exactly what he would see. Uh, in addition to having another set of eyes or what I call another spotter as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sitting in that seat you've been, I know there's a, a ton that goes into everything you're going to do throughout the game. There's a ton of information and data that's coming to you 
to make those decisions. You don't have a long time between series to make them. Talk us through, I guess, that thought process and the process with your coaches on game day from the from the communication all the way to kind of those those mini game plans between series. Yeah, we tell our guys, hey, learn something from every snap. Take some type of information that you gathered from that snap and learn from it so that the very next time or the very next team we get to run that play, you already know how he fit it the first time or how he played you the first time. And so you're able to have a higher percentage of success the next time. And so learn something from every snap on the field. And then communicate that once you get back to the sidelines. Because I can't tell you how many times as a coordinator, one of my assistant coaches would call to the booth and say, hey, tackles are saying every time that we run that outside zone, they're just going to come underneath. You know, So then that tells us we need to err on the high side of a combination call to make sure that we capture that, you know, that end before he just keeps getting up the field and, and causing uh, immediate cutback. So communication was everything. But in order to communicate, you had to, you had to communicate something honestly, and it had to be something that was going to be helpful for that next series. And so everyone was constantly gathering intel and then communicating after every single series. And then from there, once we had a really good understanding of how they were going to fit a certain run or how they were going to hat a certain formation, then we were able to make adjustments in game and then go after people from there. Coach, what kind of tools did, did your guys use, I guess, in terms of the forms or charts, whatever it might be? Like I have an Oakland Raiders one. And I mean, the amount of columns on this thing is ridiculous. So I know they're, they're, this is where they accumulate all those that data. But your guys who are your spotters and looking for different things, I know, well, first of all, I would always look for something. For me, it was, it was going to usually be the indicators we worked on. Uh, with the quarterback to recognize and there's something in their defense a, a tell as far as the coverage which would a lot of times lead you to okay you know you're going to see a certain pressure or something like that um, so I would mm-hmm. have my things I was looking at I I didn't spend a lot of time recording I just didn't have time to do that and, and then make my decisions so there's always somebody else kind of looking at and charting those things too so you know how do you collect this data how are your guys working or, or what are those forms like that they use in in the press box or on the field to communicate those things to you? Yeah, we'd have a D&D hit chart. We would have a formation hit chart. And then we'd have a pressure hit chart. And really what we were trying to gather is, okay, uh, certain formations, where were they setting the strength? Was it a field bubble or was there a weak side bubble? Rotation in, in certain formations. Was I, getting, was I getting rotation to the field or was I getting rotation to the boundary? Or was I getting rotation to the strength or to the weak side? When we picked the tight end up in motion, did they slide the front or did they keep the base and then just adjust the box, the backers? P and 10, how many pressures was I, was I getting? Third and medium, how much man coverage was I getting? So really the things that we were looking for down distance-wise, manner zone, pressures, formation-wise, how they were set in the front, where they were rotating, and then motion and shifts, you know, how were they readjusting? You know, those are the things you really want to know. And then if you can get somebody one-on-one, what was the best formation in order to do that? Or did you have to motion and shift in order to create that one-on-one? Coach, I think another key time, and usually it can be chaotic, probably a little bit more when you're on the road, is halftime. You know, you have the ability to go in, having been up in the press box, it's the first time you've been able to look into those guys' eyes, your quarterback especially, 
and, and talk to them about what's going on. So what are the important things for you, being the, the coordinator who's up in the box, that you're going to get communicated? Number one, I guess, you get your guys together. You're going to you you know kind of come up with that game plan for the second half, but also communicating to your players at halftime. I think that, you know, there's three primary things that you want to make sure you get communicated at halftime. Uh, number one, confidence in their ability to go out and execute. If they feel a genuine sense of confidence from you as the offensive coordinator in their ability to execute something, then they can go out and play with a relentless mindset and confidence themselves because they know that you believe in them and their abilities. So, Number one, confidence is one. Uh, number two, you know, our ability to run or throw the football at will. When they know that there's a certain pass concept or there's a certain run scheme or two that are really, really doing a large number to these guys, then they know you're going to call it, and then they already have confidence in it um, just because you've already had success with it. And then the third thing I always try to get communicated was let the score take care of itself. Never, don't worry about the scoreboard. If you're doing what your coach should do at a high level, better than the guy across from you, then the score is going to take care of itself. So those are the three things that you want to get communicated to those guys going into halftime. Uh, coach, to, to tie things up, you've, you've been through the game, turn that film on the next day, and it's time to evaluate both the game plan as well as your player's execution what are the, the key things that you and your staff are going to look at? Well, number one, did they know what to do? You know, at the end of the day, we got to be phenomenal educators as coaches, both good teachers and uh, good coaches of technique. And so did they know what and how to do, right? Did they give us maximum effort? Did they sell out for 60 minutes? Was it a fist fight between them and the opponent? Right. Did they know what to do? Did they sell out? Right. And did they never give up? You know, those are the three things that we're constantly going to look at. And at the end of the football game, go back and evaluate. Did we know what to do? Right. Or were they just better than us genetically? Or did, was there an error with the coaching? Did I not call the right place? Did we not teach the right techniques? Right. But did they know what to do? Okay. Did they get maximum effort? Right. And then, at the end of the day, when we watch this tape, we just want to make sure that as an entire program, for 60 minutes, it was a fist fight. Coach, you, you took us through in detail that really the process beginning to end, so I appreciate that and, and spending time answering these questions with us. The, the last thing I always like to, to ask our listeners, and I'm, I'm sure you heard this question, uh, if there's one thing that could, you could point to that gives your team success, that gives your team the winning edge, what would that be? Just understanding our culture and how we do things. You know, our way of life is, is different from everyone else. And if you're not fighting to protect and preserve our way of life, then you're a traitor and you're not a part of what we do. And so guys being bought into doing life the way that we ask them to do life together is what I feel like has allowed us to be very, very successful because they know what the expectation is. They know what the standard is. And every time they cross that line or enter that building, they know there's a humidity and there's a temperature of high expectations and execution. Coach, thanks again, and good luck to you in 2019. Keith, thanks for having me, man, and the best to you as well. 
Thanks again for tuning into the Coaching Coordinator Podcast. Stay tuned for new episodes as well as some big announcements. We appreciate you listening. Follow me on Twitter as well at Coach K Grabowski for more news.